Hello, friends, and welcome back to another episode of Unraveling Concepts of Catholicism podcast. I'm your host, Trent Bartram. Who we? That name of the podcast is a tongue twister and almost gets me every single time. The title of this episode today is going to be The Necessity of Order. We're going to look at the office of the Pope and the institution of the magisterium that was instituted by Jesus into the apostles. Before we get into that, I'm going to pray for us real quick. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, I just pray that you would come to us by your Spirit to reveal your truth and your word, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, that we would be humbled in your truth, that we would always pursue you in a renewal of our, our minds and submit ourselves to, our, to your Spirit, and that we would see that your teachings have been laid out and, and, and passed down through the apostles and it's a wonderful and beautiful thing that you've done for us. It's another example, just like your Eucharist, that you've not, le- you've not left us to fend for ourselves. Um, we love you and we thank you, Jesus, and we pray this to you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Did you fix yourself? Because I did. I always wonder if you're, you're not face-to-face with people and you, and you, you know, you vex yourself if other people listening or do it. I digress. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to look at the office of the Pope and the Magisterium here. In my conversion from Protestantism to Catholicism, one of the main points, one of the, one of the truths that was revealed was the legitimacy of the office of the Pope. And I said to myself, self, if this is proven true, then everything else in Catholicism has to be proven as true. Because as a Protestant, the office of the Pope is really, really, really shunned upon. You can dig into that yourself and figure out why. I'm not going to articulate it here because it's kind of meaty and we're just not going to touch on that today. Um, it's easy on this topic to go down many rabbit holes. I was, you know, as cathedral statements is the Pope an infallible man as opposed to infallible ter- interpretation, etc. Those kind of things. I would point you in the direction of like a Trent Horner or a Tim Staples from CatholicAnswers.com if you're wanting to get down into the very minute the very small details and get really, really in-depth on this, I, w- I would urge you to go their way. This is just going to be a podcast on peeling back what I think is the main onion, um, improving the truth of this office. I will also say before we get into that passage, this is not going to be a defense against Sola Scriptura. It's going to be, this is going to be a defense of why we believe what we believe. Um, one coming to a truth is the work of the Holy Spirit not of this podcast host, nor for that matter any other podcast host, just to be honest. We cannot persuade opinions. We can only articulate what we see from Scripture and church tradition and present that to people and then leave it and leave it with the Holy Spirit to work with. So that's what, I'll, that's what I'm going to try to do today. Peter from Scripture is clearly, in Matthew 16, 13 through 19, said to have superiority over the apostles. He's given the keys of the kingdom to heaven, and he's given the authority to bind and loose. And we're going to expand on those two things in just a moment and what those means and what those things mean in relation to Peter. I will say Peter is mentioned in the New Testament 155 times compared to all the other apostles combined being mentioned 130 times. Peter is always listed first in a grouping of apostles except for 1 Corinthians 3.22 and Galatians 2.9 respectfully. Peter was the only one with faith enough to walk out on water to meet Jesus in the storm. And it's kind of funny as I was compiling this, I went to a men's group a couple days ago, and the meditation for the day was that exact scripture passage. And I was like, well, how cool is that? There we go. There's Peter. Peter walking out with a little bit of faith. And they get back in the boat, and 
Jesus looks at him and goes, oh, you a little faith. And I always imagine Jesus having a sense of humor in that moment. And, and just for me personally, he's just looking at Peter like, come on, brother. Like, what, what else do I need to do? In that moment, Peter is a reflection of ourselves. I digress. Matthew, 13, Matthew 16, 13 through 19 goes like this. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. In my background, verses 13 through 18 are emphasized more than 19 through 20. And I will say when we do that with this particular passage, we're only seeing a picture half painted. We do see that Jesus tells Peter on this rock, on this truth, on this solid ground, I'm going to build my church. And that was the revelation from the father to Peter, not due to his wits or being near Christ the entire time, but it was a graciously gifted moment in time of wisdom from the father to Peter to reveal that truth to him. And that truth of who Christ is, is what the foundation of the church will be built on, Christ himself. Christ is going to empower his church. He's going to lead his church. He's going to strengthen his church. But in the meantime, what happens in 19 through, 19 through 20 in those verses is the authority that's given to Peter to lead Christ's church after Christ leaves. It's only responsible for the house master to leave somebody in charge when he leaves in someone who knows exactly how the headmaster wants his house ran and operated. You see allusions to this in the Old Testament. A headmaster leaves, he designates one individual, I'm giving you authority to run my house and operate my house just as if I was here. And what happens in 19 through 20 in those verses is what Jesus gives Peter, a very special authority. Jesus gives Peter the keys to the eternal heavenly kingdom of Christ. He also gives him the authority to bind and loose. The keys that Peter is given is the truth of who Christ is and the truth of his teachings. He gives those keys to Peter. And by understanding those truths, Peter with those keys unlocks the way to Christ in a sense. And that's beautiful for us. That there's a means in way of a person that we can know the truth of Christ and not sit there and fend for ourselves and, and try to sit here and figure out what does this passage mean and what does that passage mean. The loosening and binding is something that the apostles would have understood in ancient Israel. Legal authority, legal actions that the Sanhedrin has or had. 
And those things were instituted by Moses and the judges in the Old Testament. Those judges would, over time, grow into be, in Jesus' time, the Sanhedrin. Matthew 15, 17 through 20, goes like this. And we can see that in this passage, and also Luke 5, 21, and John 20, 21 through 23, why the institution that was set by Moses needed to be fixed. There needed to be a rehumbling, and there needed to be a, uh, an uncallousing of the heart that had, been taken, that had taken place in the Sanhedrin. And if we go into the book of Hebrews, we see that the author of Hebrews, the primary focus of that entire letter is to show that Jesus is the more perfect Moses. And if Moses instituted a judicial system, then Jesus likewise would take that thing, perfect it, and say this is what it's supposed to look like. Matthew 5, 17 through 20 goes like this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. This is Jesus speaking. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. This is where we get the correction. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The issue there is the challenge. Your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Two parts there. It's an instruction to us, but it's also a returning for the apostles to listen to. Their unrighteousness will not work. You have got to be more complete than this because I am going to charge you with something very special. Luke 5.21 says this, Who is this who is speaking blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their questionings, he answered them, Why do you rage, raise such questions in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, stand up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the one who was paralyzed, I say to you, stand up and take your bed and go to your home. Right here we see two things happening. The Pharisees in the passage are blinded due to a calloused heart of the revelation that God in the flesh is standing before them. Completely blinded. And that's why they ask, who are you to be blaspheming and to forgive sins? Well, I'm the son of man. I'm going to kind of do that. And then it's kind of funny in my head sometimes I, I, I'll look. This next passage is the one that makes me laugh a lot. Um in a, in, a, in a sense, not that the passage itself is funny, but the implications afterwards had to, had to have been a little bit humorous. John 20, 21 through 23, after he said this, he showed them his hands and on his side. Then, he, then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. He's giving the apostles the authority to forgive sins. But it's also a call to us to also forgive others. If we forgive others, the Father forgives us. 
We know that. That's a simple truth of any Christian, whether Catholic or Protestant. That's a simple truth. Forgive others so that you may be forgiven. But here, there's a little bit more meat on the bone. There's authority being passed down. And I think it's funny, in light of Luke 5.21, that in the self-righteousness of the Sanhedrin at the time, to question whether or not the Son of Man could forgive sins, that he then turns around. Because at the time, the Pharisees and the Sadducees looked at themselves as the higher-ups, you know, kind of better than everyone else. Not all of them, but clearly from passages, that was the general consensus in, in the hearts of, of most of them. And then he turns around and gives it to common, common fishermen and says, I'm going to give you guys the authority to, to forgive sins. And just in my very comical brain, it makes, it makes me laugh from time to time thinking about it because could you imagine the disciples just walking down the streets? And they do in Acts countless times. You know, your, your sins are forgiven. Get up and walk. Can you imagine the Pharisees looking at the disciples of the, of the Messiah that they refused, who knows crucified? Could you just imagine that? A little humorous. I just imagine Peter's probably chuckling. You know, as he's doing it, like, wow, look at these guys over here. I digress. I digress. My wife told me I need to, need to stop doing that. Just stay on point. Back to the text. We see that Jesus had not come to rip apart the law, but to fulfill it. Along with the institutions that were set in place, he had come to fulfill the law and to fulfill the institutions instituted by Moses. Like I said a minute ago, Moses started the judges, which over time became the makeup of the Sanhedrin. And if we know that Jesus is the perfect Moses, like I already said, and I'm emphasizing this for a reason, what was Jesus going to fulfill in the apostles in the judicial system that the Sanhedrin had failed to do? We just covered that. The legalism that had taken root in the hearts of the Sanhedrin was spurring self-righteousness and callous hearts. Jesus summed up the commandments as love God and love thy neighbor. By loving God, one should produce a deep-hearted love for God's creation. This is, thus, this is something that the Sanhedrin had lost and something that would be gained back through the, the apostles. A love for God that pours out to his people, which is something I myself believe Pope Francis is all about. He's a man for the people of God, for the creation of God, just as every pope should be. A heart for the people. Peter, in the passage of Matthew, had become the high priest and the apostles, the Sanhedrin, the Pope. There's a couple of examples of how these leaders that we have today in the magisterium, I believe they should lead, and I do think that the vast majority of them do lead like this. And my primary example of not meeting the Pope, have not meeting our local Bishop Jacques, is Father Paul, my priest. And I think he does these things, these bare necessities. Romans 12.2, renewing the individual's mind in God's truth, being under submission to the Holy Spirit, John 14.16-17, and coupled with an honest pursuit of truth, Matthew 7.7. 7. Do we renew our minds daily? Do we submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit daily? Do we have an honest pursuit of God's truth daily? If we have shortcomings of these things for whatever reason daily, then let the examples, the bishops, the pope, your priest, 
the instituted men of God, let them be your examples. Getting to know Father Paul over the past few months, by way of the Holy Spirit, has made me a kinder person because he is genuinely kind. Just seeing that representation has spurred that in my own heart. And that's what the magisterium is supposed to do. That's what our leadership is supposed to do, to be our examples. The primary purpose of the Pope, however, is to be the gatekeeper of God's truth that was revealed through his divine son, Jesus Christ. That is the Pope's primary function. Whereas our priests are to be our examples of how to live out the fruits of the Spirit, the Pope, likewise, is supposed to be our gatekeeper. What happens if we don't have a judicial system? Well, a couple of things come to mind really quick. The Great Schism of 1054 AD between the Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. Most notably, the Reformation in the 15th century, which has only compounded since then with multiple people establishing churches based, based on heresies like the Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses, to name a few. And I'm not throwing you guys underneath the bus in case a Mormon or Jehovah Witness is listening. I'm not throwing you underneath the bus. But the reality is such. The breaking away from this judicial system has caused schisms and blatant heresies filled with false teachers. The apostles, in their earliest writings, warned of this happening. Hold fast to the faith. Hold fast to these institutions. Hold fast to our teachings. Because false prophets are coming. False teachers are coming. It's going to happen. Such a glorious mystery as God made flesh is going to naturally in a sinful heart lead people for self-gain. Rationally it will unless their heart has been touched by the Holy Spirit. It's going to happen. We've seen evidence of it throughout history. Just crack open a history book or a church book from your library. It's happened. With that being said though, can we as the body of Christ, the church, can we rely on fallible men? That's what the whole conversation on, on the legitimacy of the office of the Pope boils down to. Can we rely on a fallible man? Man. Men. The Pope's a man. The Magisterium's men. There we go. <laughs> if one argues that we cannot rely on fallible men in lieu of the passage in Matthew, I would argue to go look at men that God instituted as leaders throughout the course of, 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 of church history, of Christendom, the entire history of Christendom. Go look at Adam. Go look at Abraham. Go look at Moses and David and Peter and Paul, etc. All fallible men that fell short of the glory of God. Yet, this is the big, this is the big yet. Yet they renewed their minds in an honest pursuit of God's truth while being submitted to the Holy Spirit. They may not be perfect men, but they are honest men. And they were also chosen by way of Peter and the apostles through a line to continue to be, to be leaders, to be chosen by God, to be instruments and tools for the expansion of his kingdom and for the glory of himself. Peter was the first person not being Mary. 
not being his own mom, the very first person to realize and verbalize the truth of who Jesus is, and he was rewarded for that. Just as Mary was rewarded with all of the graces and all of the adoration, Peter likewise, by allowing his heart to be impacted by the Spirit of God, was given the title of gatekeeper, the holder of the keys, and the one who looses and binds. He became the high priest, the pope. St. Ignatius of Antioch. Well, before I get into, in, into my guy, St. Ignatius of Antioch, and anybody at church that knows me knows I love that guy. Before I get into him, something, something hit me the other day, and I almost forgot about bringing it up. The view for most Protestants as to why the magisterium can't can't be legitimate, and it's and it's a and it's while the truth of it are disheartening, the truth that I'm just gonna say it like this: one bad apple can does not spoil the whole bunch. Unfortunately, in a world con, contaminated by sin and impacted in a way that we can't ultimately grasp we grasp sin's effect in such a small way that we don't see the total encompassing of it so there's going to be mad bad men everywhere there's bad men in the protestant church there's bad men in the cults there's bad men in the catholic church there's no denying that reality but I will say that despite all of the scandals that people like to pin at and prod at inside of the Catholic Church, I will say this. Despite the scandal of bad men, there's still hope and truth in the church and its leadership. Because they are sealed by Christ himself. They're protected by Christ himself. And through the church, the church does correct these issues. And they may not be on the timetables that we as people would like to see. But ultimately, they're resolved and they're dealt with. So stop letting the bad apples spoil the whole bunch. And may I remind you that Jesus had his own scandal. Judas. A man that in the light of what had been taking place in the ministerial life of Christ, still chose to give him up for some silver coins. That in of itself might have been one of the biggest scandals throughout history and not just church history, to be honest with you. That moment could have made the other apostles question in lieu of the miracles, in lieu of everything, Judas made a scandal. And yet what did the apostles do? They didn't waver. They kept on. And if Judas hadn't have done what he did, I think they might have more than likely, probably, instead to in, carried out some judicial punishments. I think they would have. I'll sum that, that, that thought up, and it's a thought that's kind of on the spur of the moment. Maybe it makes sense, maybe it doesn't. It might sound erratic. I sum it up like this. Fallible men can be our examples to lead in a holy life while being reminded of our need for God's grace and our shortcomings. Yet, that doesn't mean that those select few bad apples, quote-unquote, represent the whole. 
latch on to Christ first and then latch on to somebody in leadership that is embodying the fruits of the Spirit, embodying those things that I talked about a minute ago, renewing their minds daily and submitting themselves to the Spirit and have and being in an honest pursuit of God's truth. Find those men and latch on to them. Don't latch on to the bad apples to sit there and go, what is wrong with my church? Or for people who are in the church, look what's wrong over there in the Catholic church. That's not be, that's, no, 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 no. Don't do that. Latch on to good examples. Find the good apples so that the beauty of the institution can come to fruition. Now I'm going to close out. I'll quote my main main, St. Ignatius of Antioch. I'm going to paraphrase this first, this first one. It's a whole long thing in one of his letters. could be to the Ephesians. I'm not sure. Awesome letters. Go check them out. Like I said last week in the Eucharist podcast, go check out his stuff. He's an awesome guy. Unity of the church led by the bishop under the authority of Christ leads to unity and prayer and unity at the altar of God. The bishops unite us to Christ. And then they run us together in unity to at prayer and at the unity of the altar. Being subject to these men, being the Pope, the Bishop, the Cardinal, your priest, as they have been appointed by Christ, is subjection to Christ himself. We're talking one of the earliest church fathers here. And if there's one man that would have understood these things, this, this authoritative hierarchy, it would have been St. Ignatius. Harmonious faith proves Satan's destruction and the torment of his assistants. Another quote, false teachers labor under an incurable disease that is prideful deceit for one's glory. This last quote, and I'm going to close this out, is the quote that sent me over the edge when it came to this topic. He that yields not to obedience to his superiors is self-confident, quarrelsome, and proud. God says, resist the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. The proud have greatly transgressed. The Lord says to the priest, He that hears you, hears me, and he that hears me, hears the Father that sent me. He that despises you, despises me, and he that despises me, despises the one who sent me. So, in a nutshell, I'm at 26 minutes here. I'm trying to make these things not too long so you guys don't get bored. Pray for your Pope. Pray for Pope Francis. Pray for the Synod on Synodality. Don't get hung up on what other cardinals or bishops are talking about. Just read what Pope Francis is saying about it himself. Uh, he just came out the other day and equated to some of the, the scandals, the speculation that's going on of what people think is going to happen. He chalked it up as Gnosticism talk. Not the worries, but what they're worried about happening. Follow him on Twitter if you want to, or just read a news article. Stay on top of it. Trust that the Spirit is working through him, that's leading him. And that ultimately, time and time again, as me and Father Paul were talking about the other day over coffee, every time it seems that there's a scandal around Pope Francis, he somehow comes back and lands on the truth. Rest in it that the Lord's leading him. Pray for your priest. Sometimes they don't have people praying for him, but they're praying for you every day. Pray for your bishops. 
that being submitted to the Holy Spirit, they are doing what they think and being led to the best that they can do for their parishes and their, their, their diocese. Be like Peter walking on water out of the boat in faith. But let the truths that we have been revealed over the course of church history ring even heavier. And may you put both feet out of the boat. A dear, dear friend of mine, Ron, was saying that the other night. And that encouraged my heart to the, to the utmost extreme. Jump deep into it. Jump deep into the office of the Pope and the truth of it. Jump deep into it. I keep reiterating deep, deep, deep. Throw both feet off the boat. Go with it. It was instituted. Ride with it. Revel in it. Just like Christ didn't leave us alone in the Eucharist, he left, his, he left a sacrament to remind us of his true presence in the Eucharist and in adoration. Likewise, he left us an impersona Christi in, in the Pope, in the office of the Pope, to say that I'm not going to let you guys fend for yourself and eat each other alive. And that's what happened in the 15th century, but I digress again. So I'm just going to completely just go ahead and digress and wrap this one down. I'm at 30 minutes. I feel like that's a little bit too long. Um, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord Jesus, thank you that just as in your Eucharist, you left behind a sacrament, that in it you become present, body, flesh, and blood, and divinity as a reminder that you will not leave us until the end of the age, but also that you left behind an institution in the office of the Pope and the Magisterium to have authoritative teaching, authoritative leadership, so that we would not have to fend for ourselves, that we will not eat ourselves alive, bickering over what is true and what isn't true, that you have laid out your truth and given the keys to the office of the Pope so we don't have to worry about what truth is. What I pray for I pray, I pray for Pope Francis. I pray for Bishop Jacques. I pay for I pray for um, Father Paul, all of the magisterium, Lord, that they continually renew their minds in your truth daily, that they submit daily to the Holy Spirit, and that daily they're in an honest pursuit of your truth to be examples for us. Lord, we, we clench ourselves to you. We clench to the things that you instituted for us. And above all those things, we cry out, Abba, Father, and say we love you and we thank you for all that you've done and for all that you're continuing to do for us. You who started a good work will complete it. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. God bless to all of you, friends. Uh, we'll be back next week with another one.